Warning, this episode contains details that some listeners may find disturbing. Last week, we explored the history of the zombie in Haitian lore, and how the concept has spread to the United States where the idea has evolved. There are still accounts of so-called zombies and zombifications in Haiti to this day. Tracking down specific details of these zombies is difficult, but there are a handful we can and will explore. There's no reason to doubt people's beliefs in the matter because there are explanations that might explain how a modern-day, real zombie is created. There are different theories, including psychiatric disorders, neurotoxins, and mistaken belief of death. This is a study of strange. Welcome back to the show. I'm Michael May, and still with me, talking about zombies, is Molly Elfman. Hi, Molly. I'm still trying to figure out The Walking Dead. Yeah, well. I need to find my answers. I need to know what happens. <laughs> I will I will share some tales with you. This, this part is a bit different than part one. Part one, I was, you know, very kind of nerdy history stuff that I love to to establish kind of the background for what zombies are. This part, I'm going to be sharing some tales from Haiti of supposedly real zombies. And the point of this episode is really just because I'm fascinated with these. There's no other point. But I do think we can kind of learn and think about what this means, what it means to to zombies in the media, um, but also about how belief is so powerful. So You brought me on because you thought that I might be the walking dead because I'm just mindlessly mm-hmm. moving forward no matter what. All the time. All the time. <laughs> and that's actually where we're going to start. Molly, you're a zombie. So we're going to interview Fantastic. you. What's it like to be a zombie? Yeah, it's pretty great. You know, you just <laughs> go for a lot of walks. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I get hungry. <laughs> my my wife, Amy, who, who you know, uh, but Amy has said for years that zombies, they don't actually want to eat you or eat your brains. They just want hugs because she just imagines them in that slow paced arms out in front. Yeah. And when you think about, you know, in part one, we talked about how zombies are victims, you know, in, yeah. in the Haitian lore. And so she might be onto something. Honestly, they I might just so. want a hug. Yeah. All these monsters just really want hugs. So when you get down to it, most monsters need a hug. It's true. It is true. Hugs could do a lot of good for the world. I think we could all use more hugs. So where we left off is the history of Haiti is filled with slavery and rebellion and occupation and this blending of cultures and religions and all this kind of stuff. And they, they have a belief called voodoo. And they believe someone can become a zombie, a soulless creature who does the work uh, primarily for labor is, is where most of the stories are about. And the thought from early on here is that a bokur can use a a recipe or ingredients to take over one's mind and body to create a zombie. And we left off with the person who first presents recorded cases of a zombie, bringing more than just anecdotal kind of stories, an actual experience, the writer and anthropologist Zora Neil Hurston. And she saw or who she saw, or what she saw, Molly, was allegedly a zombie. And apparently it is a woman, or I should say allegedly, a woman named Felicia Felix Mentor. 
So I would like you to read uh, from, I think that's the number four in your email. Before you start here, just to set it up. So Molly's going to read uh, a, a portion from the book, Tell My Horse, that Hurston wrote. And this is with a conversation with a doctor in 1936 that apparently had a zombie he knew about and he was telling uh, Zora about. So go ahead when you're ready. Oh, boy. Mm-hmm. I had his permission to make an investigation of the matter. He gave me letters to the officers of the hospital. The chief of the staff of the hospital was very kind and helped me in every way that he could. We found the zombie in the hospital yard. They had just set her dinner before her. They had just set her dinner before her, but she was not eating. She hovered against the fence in a sort of defensive position. The moment that she sensed our approach, she broke off a limb of a shrub and began to use it to dust and clean the ground and the fence and the table, which bore her food. She huddled the cloth about her head closely and showed every sign of fear, an expectation of abuse and violence. The two doctors with me made kindly noises and tried to reassure her. She seemed to hear nothing. She just kept trying to hide herself. The doctor uncovered her head uh, for a moment, but she promptly clapped her arms and hands over it to shut out the things that she dreaded. This poor zombie. She's yeah. just so scared. Absolutely they are. So especially if if the case of Felix or Felicia Felix mentor is true, if she was really somebody that someone took over her sort of mind and body to be a laborer, these people are probably beat, not treated well. I can understand being very scared. Yeah. And Hurston went on to work to take a picture of this supposed zombie. And apparently it took her kind of a bit to get like a good, <laughs> a good shot. Mm -hmm. And the woman kept trying to cover her face with this cloth. Uh, but eventually she was able to capture a picture. And oh, do you want to see this real quick, Molly? I do. Let me, yeah. let me pull this or, up. This is, this is fun for Patreon. You get to hear me kind of look for... Uh... It's wild to think of all these scary things. And also the fact that she wasn't eating food. Maybe that's where the whole idea of she doesn't want food. She, they must want to eat us. And it's like, wait, there's other steps that we could have gone to. <laughs> Why did we jump here immediately? So just scroll down a oh, bit. wow. Yeah. It's also kind of like it's hard to make out her face. Was that because she was moving so much? It might be because she's moving. Um, I, that's probably back not in the day. The cameras weren't great at catching if you're moving. Well, and she was not a professional photographer, and it's the 30s. You know, it's it's a bit yeah. harder and more cumbersome to take a photo back then. Yeah. So it's it's not the best photo. And I will say what's really interesting about researching zombie stories is you find this photo being used for Clairvius Narcisse, like the most mm -hmm. famous story of a zombie that we'll talk about. You see it online as him. It is not him. The photo you see of a zombie in black and white is a woman, and it was taken by Hurston in 1936. Yeah, it, it's a it's an amazing so story. Yeah, so Hurston learns that Felicia Felix Mentor, so the person who this this woman, the zombie in the photo, mm -hmm. is apparently that that's who she is, was a mm -hmm. native of a town called Ennery, and she had died as a young woman in 1907. So this is the 30s now. So this is a long time. She has aged. And she was found by somebody who saw a, a naked woman kind of wandering down the road. And the police were called and they got her and eventually sent her to the hospital. And she, uh, Hurston described the zombie as being 
having a blank face and dead eyes and eyelids that were kind of pale, almost like something and may have burnt her eyes at one point. And she was walking with a limp. So she had a bit of a lame leg. And apparently that's one of the reasons why people thought she could be Felicia Felix mentor because she had a lame leg. Hurston describes her conversation with the local doctors and the doctors don't believe in zombies. They're like, no, we don't, we don't believe in zombies that are zombies, zombies. We believe people are taken advantage of and they're kind of reanimated by people with powders and, and drugs. And they also think if this is Felix, uh, Felicia Felix, that's hard to say, that there could be brain damage because if somebody is really buried for up to like three days, they're not breathing correctly, there's not enough oxygen, you can you can suffer brain damage and that can actually have an effect on these zombie-like behaviors. So can the trauma, by the way, the, the yes. like emotional yes. trauma. I remember hearing of a case a long time ago about a woman who was uh, sold into the sex trade and... and basically got out of it but hid in the new york uh like sewer system for a while and when she came out she had lost the ability to speak mm-hmm. for uh, I, it took a long time for her to bring that back but it also like severe emotional trauma can affect you in many i mean we know this but many ways yeah. physically including things like this yes yes i uh 100 <laughs> true and especially if again if these kind of stories are real there you can imagine it's not just drugs because someone's trying to take control of these people for a long period of time and history shows us that the way you kind of do that is with physical and emotional abuse so it's a lot of there's trauma for for many things not just the burying but it it would continue is my point like it's it's just gonna continue however if anybody's doubting stories or questioning this zombification procedure, which I'll call it, there are beliefs that a lot of the stories that come out, including the ones we'll share today, are not actually zombie stories. And they the accounts could fall under the theories are that there's mistaken identity. There's the power of suggestion, where if someone's told enough that they are a zombie, they just start to believe they're a zombie. Or that there's a combination of those kind of things, mistaken identity. Maybe they were drugged. Maybe someone did try to make them a zombie, and it's a combination of all the above. The -hmm. debate with Felicia Felix Mentor kind of comes to fruition in 1945. A doctor named Louis P. Mars, who worked at the psychiatric hospital in Port-au-Prince, he studied Felicia Felix Mentor. And he noticed that this eye disease, this, this eye thing was actually a disease. And it caused her eyelashes to fall out. And this made her very susceptible to the sun. Like she was really like, you know, it's all, it's your natural sunglasses are now gone. So you're more sensitive to the sun. And that might be why she was trying to cover her face with a cloth. He also had her x-rayed and there was no fracture in her le- left leg. Her lameness was due entirely to dietary deficiencies. She also was much younger than Felicia Felix Mentor would have been. She looked older when they found her, but because of the dietary issues, because of the health issues, she looked a lot older. So once she kind of regained her ability to eat well and to walk, she actually looked much younger. And he even wrote that she began to menstruate again, so she wasn't menstruating. And that also implies she's younger than what Felix uh, Felicia Felix Mentor would have been. Uh, mm-hmm. Mars did say that Hurston's conclusion that this was a real zombie was just a simplistic way to look at it. 
And the woman didn't speak intelligently. She didn't know where she was. She didn't know how she got there. And Mars believed that she was suffering from schizophrenia. Mm. And yeah, and 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 that also brings up there's not a lot of mental health services in Haiti, especially the 30s. So uh, you're not enough is, here now either. But you know, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, so people like that could easily be mistaken or just immediately thought of as yeah. zombies. Um, so she might not have actually been a zombie. So it's just an interesting story. And was she, so yeah, so but they did believe that she was buried. Did they know how she got out of being buried? No, so they believe she's just an entirely different person. So oh, they're okay. they don't even think it's it's she's too young to be Felicia. So there's But if somebody would have believed that she was a zombie, how did she get <laughs> You how did she get out? I'm obsessing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, are, how are they getting out? Also, if this happens to so me, how do the, I get out? It's theoretically the Bokor gets them out of the grave. So someone okay. comes and get oh, okay. them. So they don't, no, they don't like punch through the ground or anything. They, they are literally brought out by somebody. Seeing where I'm going next. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Iconic so ne- images of all these zombies. That's jumping right. Gra- Hollywood, graves. Hollywood effects are, are they imagination with these things. Now, next up, we're going to do the most famous case of a zombie, Clervius Narcisse. And this actually starts with a prominent doctor in the sort of the study of zombies, a guy named Lamarck Duyon, who also studied at the Psychiatric Center in Port-au-Prince, Haiti. And he found Clervius Narcisse, and, or at least heard of the story and started looking into it. So Narcisse, the story goes that this guy, Narcisse, he checked into the Schweitzer Hospital, which is kind of like, I want to say it's like 30 miles outside of the capital of Haiti in 1962. He was sick. He had a fever. He was splitting up blood. And he died within three days. His death was was confirmed by at least two doctors, and then he was buried. Now, I'm going to point out uh, an incorrect thing that always comes up with Narcissa's story. You always hear that there's no cause of death that could be figured out. He just died mysteriously. That's not true. There's actually record of it. He had kidney failure. So we do know how this gentleman died. But here's where it gets strange. In 1980, a man call, calling himself Clervius approached Angelina Narcisse, Clairvius's sister. And he was like, hey, hey, what's up? I'm your brother. It's been a long time. How you doing? Uh, I don't think that's exactly what he said. I'm paraphrasing, but he was something like that. I think he's probably right. Yeah. But he claimed he was conscious that he had died and been turned into a zombie for all these years. He had been buried. He was buried for three days underground when his coffin suddenly opened and then he was beaten. He was hit. He was gagged and he was given a drug. And this was done by a Bokur to take control of him, and he made Clervius work on a plantation in northern Haiti for two years. And then the Bokur died, and Narcisse kind of regained his own his own will, his sense of control. But he didn't come home for all of these years because he suspected his brother had hired the Bokur to turn him into a zombie because Narcisse and his brother were fighting about various things, including a land dispute. Narcisse was not the most respected man in town. We'll get a little more into this in a few minutes. And when he returned home, it was because he had heard his brother died. So he felt like he was it was a place he could now go back to. Uh, the family seemed to agree that this was Narcisse, but there was never a, a DNA test that I'm aware of that was given to him to confirm it. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Duyon, who came across this story, he contacted a colleague of Wade Davis. Davis, he's an ethnobiologist i believe or yeah ethnobiologist i think that's what he is 
So Dr. Duyon contacted this co- colleague of Davis's and the colleague called Davis, who was living in the Amazon at the time, was like, hey, can you go to Haiti and look into this? And Davis is like, yeah, that sounds awesome. So he goes to to study this case. And his mission was to find a formula that Bocors used to make zombies. He wanted to find out what's in them. Are they real? What's going on? And he worked really hard at this. He kind of had to, I guess, get some trust of some local Bocours in order to have them give him examples or or you know, little little vials or cases of of what they use to make a zombie. And he had these examples tested. Now, every Bokor has a different recipe. You know, there's no like handbook and they all follow a specific thing. They're all kind of doing their own thing. And he did get various examples. Now, his theory, Davis's, was that a poison called tetradotoxin was the culprit of this death-like state. And tetradotoxin can be found in pufferfish and some other things it. as well. I had yeah. heard of that before. I've heard. Yeah. I was like, "Wait, why do I know this pufferfish?" <laughs> yes, sorry. yeah. Very this funny. is a this is a, a very kind of famous story, and this is the Serpent in the Rainbow was a, a movie that Wes Craven made that it covers this story. Yeah, and uh, although a fi- kind of a fictionalized version of this story, but yeah. So so Wade Davis was theorizing it's not just a tetradotoxin that's important, but there's got to be another one in this like drug after. They're, they're brought back to life after the supposed death. And this other drug is probably a hallucinogenic type thing, and it could come from this zombie cucumber that has the right chemical compound to kind of do that this. That sounds fun. We should try that. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> why, don't, why don't you try it first and then tell me how it goes? <laughs> now, there are plenty of scientists that kind of disagree with Davis's work. Because the the studies done on these examples that he got said there wasn't enough or there was no tetradotoxin in them. But Davis thinks that this phenomenon is real. And they're actually, I was able to find that tetradotoxin is not always in puffer fish. So if somebody's catching them and trying to create this powder, there's sometimes it's going to work, sometimes it's not. And it's also not a very scientific thing. So to your point in part one of like, there could be zombies that never became zombies that could just be dead underground if people really are using these things they are having some effect on people sometimes if it has the toxin you could give somebody too much and they'll die too little won't do anything so it's this balancing act that's really and you go and you dig them up for nothing you dig them up and you're like damn too much pepper fish there you go (laughs) that's right (laughs) wasted evening that's right. Uh, so it's, yeah, but it, it seems to make sense. And it makes sense, theoretically, this idea of Davis's of how this could happen makes sense because now for almost almost 100 years as of this recording, people have been writing about the stories they're hearing of Bokors using some kind of concoction, some sort of powder mm-hmm. that they're giving to people to turn people into zombies. According to Skeptoid, though, I'm actually going to read this because they say it so much better than I ever will. There are doubts about Clarvius Narcissus story. And and here here's the the quote from <laughs> Skeptoid. Haiti is not known for its wealth. In 1962 a hospital stay was beyond the means of many residents. The hospital where, where Narcisse is alleged to have died, the Albert Schweitzer Medical Center, charged $5 a day for local residents at a higher rate for non-locals. But poor non-locals got sick too. And it was not unheard of for them to check in under the name of a local to qualify for the lower rate. We have no evidence to rule out the likelihood that some unknown man developed a fatal kidney failure, checked in using Clearvius' Narcissus' name, and subsequently died. It turns out 
there is a perfectly plausible reason that the real Narcisse might have been just fine with this. He had been something of a family black sheep. He had a number of illegitimate children whose mothers demanded support and some other bad debts and was not well respected. In fact, during Dr. Duyon's interviews, he learned that the family considered Narcissus' sins to be the reason that the Bokurs had punished him with zombification. And for a man with Narcissus' skeletons in the closet, seeking a chain of scenery is hardly unheard of. Perhaps in his later years, he had a change of heart and wanted to reconnect with his family, considering the convenient circumstances his zombification was a perfect cover story. So, yeah. So that is not proven, mm-hmm. but it is, that's a good theory. That is a very, very good I, theory. It was funny because when you were first telling me the story, I was remembering, do you remember the film Summer's Beef? I remember the name. What happens in it? I don't know if I remember what happens <laughs> God, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. But basically, it's this man comes back, says that he's this woman's husband, and people say, no, you're not the husband. And is he the husband or is he not? But it just also reminds me of, like, uh, like you used to be able to do that. You used to be able to just <laughs> be like, no, I'm this person. No, look, yeah. I, I have his wallet. I must be. Uh, which is potentially more likely yeah <laughs> i don't know yeah but th- that that is something that used to happen that is very interesting once again goes to social issues which zombies seem yes. to love yes. to be around it's like yeah 100 <laughs> percent yeah and and that leads into the last two examples of these zombie stories i'll give are both from uh, there's 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 a lot of writing about them but they are both in a documentary made in the 90s called interview with a zombie And I wanted to share these stories because, again, it's really hard to get actual details of these stories from Haiti. There's a lot of them are just like, oh, this guy, he was a zombie. And it's like, okay, who was he? And it's just really hard here to find the details. Yeah. What what boxes do you have to check in order to be officially classified as a zombie? Exactly. Um, And these are these stories. I'll just get into them. I'll I'll kind of circle back Mm -hmm. around to the point I want to make. So we're going to start with Wilfred Dorisant, and this is the you read a start of his yeah. story at the part at uh, the top of part one good old to Wilfred. refresh. Oh, sorry, what was that? I said good old Wilfred. Yep. So to refresh, Wilfred Dorisant, he was a teenager that uh, supposedly died in 1988, and then in 1989. There was a local cockfight. It's very popular. That's what happens. Uh, you know, we I don't like the idea of cockfights, but I don't live uh-huh. there. And it's got to be it's a social function. It's a popular function. It gets people like a sporting events here. Like put aside your thoughts on cockfighting. It is it's like a sporting event. It's a big deal. And Wilfred is seen by friends and relatives and acquaintances of his walking around. And he's supposedly been dead for almost a year. So they're shocked. His family comes and meets this guy and they think it's Wilfred. And but they say that he's not normal. He's not speaking well. He doesn't seem to be very aware, aware of his surroundings. And they see this as a miracle. Like this is a huge, obviously they're, they're mourning uh, for, for their son. So they see this as a miracle. And he also had lost weight and he was speaking softly and the mother apparently identified him not just by you know the nature of, of his face, but also Wilfred had a broken finger on his left hand, and apparently this guy also had a matching broken finger. And the thought here was that he was a, he, he had been a zombie, 
And he may have either been because he was a zombie, he was acting this way, or if he had been turned into a zombie for a short period of time, he may have suffered brain damage is sort of the other thought that could happen here. And Wilfred said that he had been handcuffed and forced to work. And his dad, this quote from his dad is just like heartbreaking to me, but his dad said, that's why people say it's better to die once and for all than to become a zombie. So yeah, it's very sad. Now. That's yeah. actually very interesting. This ties into birth rebirth in the story yeah. that we just did. I was I was going to try to bring that up at the end of this episode, so I'm glad you said that. Well, yeah, we'll yeah, come back to that. That, that, that is very. Yeah. What is life? Mm-hmm. So, if Wilfred is a real zombie, who did this to him and why? Well, the family quickly concluded that it was it was Wilfred's uncle, a guy named Bellevoix. And it was said that he did this because it was some sort of land dispute, another land dispute here that Wilfred's family was having. And Bellevoix being upset about this zombified Wilfred. And Bellevoix is seen locally as a bit of like a voodoo doctor. He's he's tight with some sort of voodoo community. And the local magistrate or police officer is notified about this. The family says, Bellevoix turned our son into a zombie. Here's proof. Here's our son. And he uh, Bellevoix was arrested. And on March of 1990, Belavois was proven guilty of turning someone into a zombie. And he had confessed to doing it. Now, I will be quick to point out, he later said that he was beaten and forced to confess. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Damn it. So there's always a problem. (laughs) There's a lot. There's so many problems with this. Yeah, there's riddled with issues. Yeah. Now, people outside of this that are like, no, this isn't this isn't sitting right with me. I don't believe in zombies. They think there's a mistaken identity aspect to this story that we that we heard potentially about with Clairvius Narcisse. Wilfred's family vehemently denied that this could be anybody but Wilfred. They believe it is Wilfred. During the documentary that I mentioned, they actually had Wilfred's DNA tested, and it wasn't Wilfred, which means Belavoir was wrongly convicted. And we don't know who this guy is. Again, it kind of comes down to really, he could have been turned into a zombie. This could be somebody who was is sort of zombified in the distances or again, mental illness. And people yeah. just assume it's someone and people are he, mourning. He they want their son pinky. back. The other guy broke his pinky. Yeah. Yeah, this is really sad. Might as well. And and could this person speak? Could Wilfred speak? They they can, and you can actually see him speak, but he speaks very quietly and really doesn't make a lot of sense when he does, and he seems to get yeah. very confused. So okay, so that yeah. that's why they would have thought that he was a zombie version of himself, mm-hmm. not necessarily just another person with mental illness. Right, exactly. Oh, and I I'm going to quickly kind of jump in here to Marie Moncour. So this is another story that's also in the same documentary. And the alleged story with her is that she died 12 years before being found again in the 1990s. And Marie's brother, Michel, found her and was, you know, told her about her and, and claimed that it was a shock. Like they, he, he was just completely shocked. And he, he mentioned that he cried a lot. It was a very strange thing, but he was so happy to see her. And he recognized her because of various marks on her face and the way her teeth looked and things like this. And, but Marie kept saying she doesn't think she was a zombie. Her, her definition of a zombie is somebody that walks with her head down. I just realized I was acting that out for you, but I turned my face away from my, my microphone. <laughs> <laughs> so she says she wasn't a zombie. Similarly, she doesn't commun- communicate very well. She gets confused okay. easily. She doesn't communicate well. 
And I, I don't have much more detail about her story before being found, why she might have turned into a zombie, who would have wanted to turn her into a zombie. But in this documentary, they actually take her to the town where she was found or the outskirts of the town where she was found because they wanted to see if it might bring back a memory of like, why was she there? How did she get there? And they bring her to this town and it, it's fascinating. There will be links to this documentary. It is free online. This is an amazing scene. But they arrive at this area with Michelle, the brother, and and Marie, and they get her out and they're talking to her. And they're like, okay, do you remember being here? Why were you here? And then people start gathering around and they're like, hey, Fufun. And some guy is like, that's my cousin, Fufun. And they're like, no, this is Marie Moncourt. And he's like, no, that's my cousin. She's been lost for nine months and she's mentally disabled. And so people start like coming around, like while they're filming this documentary, a big crowd comes and, you know, small towns, small areas. It's like the local market on this street. So there's a lot of people there and everybody's like, yeah, that, that's that's Fufun. And Michelle is like vehemently denies it. He's like, no, this is Marie. This is my sister. This can't be correct. Um, and so luckily they, they actually find Fufun's daughter and they ask her, like, who is this? And it's a really interesting scene because if if this is is, is Fufun, Fufun is mentally disabled. She might not be very emotionally connected to her daughter. And so her daughter is just like, yeah, I recognize her. But like there wasn't a lot of emotional stuff to it. So it's, it's really interesting to watch. And both families start accusing the other family of sorcery. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. And they luckily they they did a DNA test. It turns out Marie was not Marie. Marie was Fufun. And so she really was Fufun and mentally disabled. And this the all these stories I share, I don't share these to like prove that there's no such thing as a zombie or something like that. I actually think people in Haiti are doing something. And I do think Bokors have the ability to potentially make what they call zombies, what they believe is zombies. But it, it this does bring up, there's just so many questions. There's, like, there's a lot of depth to this that I just find really interesting. And a lot of the various theories about what a zombie, if people claim somebody's a zombie, what they could be, because it could be mistaken in identity. It could be somebody that suffered something. It could be mental disability. Every theory can be true. Yeah. What's, what's the most interesting in almost all these cases, it, it, it centers around somebody who can't accept loss, who can't accept yes. that somebody is gone and needs them to be there and is willing to believe uh, wild, extenuating circumstances in order to make sure that that person is still alive and even accept them in, an, in a form of half-life in order to keep them around because the idea of loss is just too extreme. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, I mean, this is, I, I have some things that I've thought about a lot that we'll get to. I have sort of the question I want to ask at the end of every episode now, which is like, what did we learn? Mm. But I, I think what you're talking about right now actually does tie into the film you produced, Birth Rebirth, which will be out on Shutter later. So, yeah, what do you want to, what were your thoughts on that when I, when you first were thinking about it? Yeah. I, I mean, in terms of birth rebirth, the reason why I was always so drawn to this film that Laura and Brendan O'Brien wrote was, first of all, the idea of motherhood and how one could be a mother without necessarily birthing a child with their body. Uh, but then the other idea of what, how far somebody would go uh, to have their child back uh, when dealing with loss. So you have those two stories that are intertwined in the film. And uh 
and the idea of uh, going through loss being such an extreme experience that is so hard to accept, especially the loss of a child. Uh, what lengths would you not go to? And the answer in this one is reanimating the dead, yeah. which is you know uh, something that we do, which is funny because I was just realizing how much the Frankenstein lore is somewhat attached to the zombie lore. Uh, yep. And again, wanting to create life, wanting to create legacy, wanting something that is a servant or serves a purpose that you need. Uh, and, you know, in birth, rebirth, the services not being able to accept that the mother missed the day that their child died and, and not being there. And that's just too much to bear. Uh, and that was a very interesting topic. I love that we got to explore that. But it is interesting to see how that lore can just be taken in so many different ways. We went in a, a motherhood legacy kind of, uh, and then tried to find ways of kind of with all that heavy material, finding some fun and some lightness in, in it. And that is in the reanimating of the dead. That is you can control the thing that you absolutely cannot control which all of these people are trying to do in all of these stories. Uh, they're trying to control other people and they're trying to control death. Uh, and it's just funny how many, as we talked about this, it does actually connect to ghost lore in that way, which is just once again, us wanting to connect to things that we can't necessarily connect to or, or can. And as you know, I do believe in ghosts and I do yeah. believe in spirits and I do believe in that type of stuff. So it makes sense to me that this would exist. It also makes sense to me that the people who have the power of doing this aren't exactly putting their stories on record because why would you? Uh, it's not necessarily something that is a good thing that would be deemed, I mean, I think you would probably be jailed and imprisoned immediately. So if you do have this power, that's probably why these stories, the stories that you're finding are the stories that are adjacent to because there are real stories that exist. And yeah. the stories that are adjacent to are the ones that you're finding. And those are the ones that probably are mistaken identity, mental illness, that type of stuff. Um, and I mean, it does sound uh, what I've been fascinated by all of this is also if you can detach a piece of a human's mind. I mean, let's get into lobotomies for a second. There you go. I mean, there it's, you go. Yeah. It's, it's almost exactly the same. Right. And if the the problem with any of that type of stuff is somebody decides that somebody else shouldn't have the power of their mind or the ability to access it in order to make it easier for them in one way or another. And how horribly wrong that is in every single instance that we see it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, we go right back to medical malpractice. Yeah, and, and I think that's kind of what occurred to me the more I looked into this is... You know, if there are things I learned from this, one is that we're all the same. Human nature is the same. There's a universality to the idea, to the fears of a zombie. And when you look at the history of it, part of the reason I like always looking at history, as much as I'm a nerd about it, is I believe in the interconnectivity of everything. And yeah. so you look at the zombie belief in Haiti still to this day, it still is connected to their terrible history with slavery and their fear of being controlled by somebody else yeah, and, and wanting to suppress others for their own gain yeah absolutely <laughs> and yeah and so you see like the zombie there still represents their fears mm -hmm. and in western society or in american society i'll even say and in hollywood it's evolved it's evolved partly because just the nature of 
people being creative with ideas and stuff. But also we have our own separate fears. We don't have the same history that they have in Haiti and the Caribbean. So we're looking at viruses and pandemics and even race relations when, you know, in like the 60s, when those kind of zombie movies were being made. So it it, it represents the zombie has this amazing way to be used for whatever we're we're afraid of. And yeah. and that was just one of the things that stood out to me. Looking at this, there there's a universality to it. There is. And there even, was even little locker room Z that we did. Yeah, that little yeah. one was all about my like whole metaphor for healthcare. As long as you are just distracted enough with Instagram and TV and whatever it is that you're doing, and all the rest of the world, then you will ignore something, and you're absolutely fine until something goes wrong. And then what are you going to do? There's not a support system, and you're going to get turned into a yeah. zombie, and then get stuck doing the same thing over and over again. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, here, you know, zombies have moved away and evolved from their original configuration, but you're still seeing them, seeing them tied uh, in Haiti. I love what you said about lobotomy too. Like that's, that's a really interesting, that's, that's a, t- I think I, I I listened to a podcast about the history of lobotomy. I forget which one it was, but it was just horrendous. And it really is about trying to control somebody. So that's like a, as much as as people yeah. through the history of looking at Haiti or people that 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 believe in voodoo or voodoo, there's that lens of like, oh, these crazy people. Um, and there's that racist kind of attitude towards it. But then they're turning around and doing lobotomies in the, in the hospital. And it's like, no, it's the same thing. You guys are doing the same thing. You're just exactly. looking. You're, yeah. So again, universality. Yeah. yeah. Well, cool. Well, not to sound too, you know, professorial about these things, but I, I think it's a fascinating subject, and uh, I hope you enjoyed chatting about zombies, Molly. I did. I learned so much more than I thought I was going to about zombies, and just how much more I would actually connect with zombies, and and just what a mirror they are to society. I mean, again, we're still seeing yeah. that right now with, it, but it, it's it's and it is. It always goes back to human beings and having to deal with things that are difficult to deal with, and also. Hollywood lies to us over yeah. and over again. And they they take something, they take our fears and they manifest it into these monsters and the monsters sell better if they do certain things. But I think it would be so much more interesting to actually get into what a real zombie, I mean, these stories are far yeah. more terrifying than most of the zombies coming out of their graves and biting people. So I agree. It's, it's I agree. Yeah. yeah. And I would, when I was looking at this too, uh, when Romero made the first, is that the, the living dead? Is that the, I can't Night remember of the, the dead? Yeah, yeah. Um, he never referred to them as zombies. Like yeah. people put that onto it. Yeah. Uh, and I find that really interesting too, because he had kind of created his own little little thing. And that's a, that's a big evolution there of what zombies have become in, yeah. in media. I thought The Last of Us, just not to, that I want to plug that. I have nothing to do with it at all. But one of the things that I found so interesting that they did in one episode. And again, I don't want to do any spoilers, so there won't be any, but (laughs) part of it is a discussion of what zombie, what everybody's talking about with zombies is what's wrong with death, not wanting to die. You're always trying to live uh, or you're always trying to survive. How do you survive longer? But they never ask the question of how do you live and how do you live well? And then more importantly, how do you die well? Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that there are, can be death with dignity. And I think that it's important with all of this when all you're trying to do is survive is to talk about death, the thing that we're all the most afraid of, of, of that there are ways of not being as afraid of that. And I think that's a huge problem in our society, especially yeah. America. It's just I, like when people say, if I die, and it's like, no, that, that's a when. 
that's uh you know you hear that all the time but just like our inability to accept the reality yeah. of it and and that it maybe there's some beauty with that absolutely i think there always is uh well thank you again molly i don't want to keep taking up your time thank you hey, for coming great. on thank you yeah, and you did you you succeeded you brought uh a certain intellectual sort of nature to it and and saw the deeper meaning for zombies which is what i was oh. hoping would happen uh, so that. thank you so much. Uh, so again, you already <laughs> did it in part one, but sometimes, you know, people only listen to one of these things. So where can people uh, find your things coming out or find you? Absolutely. Birth Rebirth, directed by Laura Moss, uh, will be out later this year uh, through Shutter and uh, potentially other avenues as well. But we'll talk about that soon. And Next Exit <laughs> is available uh, on demand right now and will be available in the UK February 20th. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. And yeah, I kind of, I don't know. What else do I say to you? There you go. Zombie. Be a zombie. Hugs. Bye, Molly. Bye. Thank you all for listening to our two parts on zombies. This was a topic I was really excited to learn more about. And my research took me, uh, it took me a different way than I intended, which is always a lot of fun for myself. A special thank you to Molly Elfman, and make sure you are subscribed to A Study of Strange wherever you listen to podcasts, and if you're on a platform that you can rate and review, we would be very grateful for that. Also, please check out our Patreon for additional content and unedited episodes and other special things. You can find that through our website, astudyofstrange.com. Follow us on Instagram at A Study of Strange, and as usual, send me comments, likes, dislikes, things I miss, things you want to hear about. A study of strange at gmail.com. Next up, we will be covering the Connecticut witch trials, getting into some witchy business for the first time on A Study of Strange. Then after that, you may have heard me bring this up at the end of the last episode, but it does look like there's interest, and I'm going to do a Bigfoot episode with my six-year-old son, unless he backs out at the last minute, because that's always possible with him. Um, but that was an idea my wife initially brought up and I thought could be a lot of fun because he is obsessed with Bigfoot. So that'll be a, a different sort of episode, but I'm looking forward to figuring that out. So stay tuned and thank you and good night. <laughs>